This is Resolutions, a podcast from the American Bar Association Dispute Resolution Section. I'm Larry Schooler. I'm a director and senior facilitator at Kearns and West, and I teach at the University of Texas at Austin. Anyone in the dispute resolution world knows the value of empowering parties and giving them a voice. But what if their voices are hard to understand? If, for example, they bark rather than speak? Karis Nafti knows all about this. She's a credentialed mediator and an animal behaviorist who helps work with separating couples on the best solutions for their pets. She joined Resolutions from her home in South Africa to explain how her practice came about and how it works. Well, Karis Nafti, welcome to Resolutions. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I think I want to start with animals and just understand your connection to them, where it came from, and and what has led it to grow? Well, that's a very good place to start with where my life has ended up now. So the really where my connection with animals started is my first word was dog. Before I even said mom, I said dog. And that's that's the honest truth. And growing up, my parents didn't want dogs. And so in my family, um, I was desperate for a dog for as long as I could remember. And because I wasn't allowed dogs, what that did for me is it created such a love for them that I studied every, everything I could about dogs. I started a dog walking business when I was a little kid. And I spent so much of my time learning about dogs because I didn't have one that as soon as I was about 16, I was allowed a dog when I was 16. At that age, I got a job at a dog training school answering the phones as the secretary. And that's where I learned how to actually work with dogs. And a year later, I was teaching puppy school and dog training when I was 17. And that's what I've done ever since. And if I can ask, what is it about dogs, would you say? Oh, that's a good question. What is it not about dogs, Larry? Dogs are great. Look, I love, I really love all animals. I mean, I'm sure it'll come out in our conversation. I have, I've had the real privilege of working with uh, cheetahs and giraffes and squirrels and horses and cats, uh, hamsters, everything you can imagine. But most of my work is with dogs. And the only way I can answer that is I just feel like dogs are part of my soul. And that sounds a little bit cheesy and, and, and silly, but they've just always been a part of me. And I've spent my life learning to understand them because lo- to love something, in my opinion, you really have to understand it. So you don't just cloud what you're seeing with the dog with your own emotions. And that's a lot of what I try to do in my work as an animal behaviorist is helping people separate their assumptions from the dog from what's actually happening. Um, because that's the only way you can actually deal with the situation uh, correctly for a dog. And that's the challenge. That's the challenge when you work with animals is what does the dog need here versus what does the people need? And it's a little bit of a tricky line. So you mentioned being an animal behaviorist. So maybe just chart, if you could, kind of your your path from that front desk job to to the present in terms of your your work with animals. Okay. So so I started, yeah, I started answering the phones at a dog training school and sweeping up all the dog hair, like for a long time. And um being being working with dogs the best way really to learn is to do it and to find someone who can who you can shadow and you can learn from so i was really really fortunate that i had a wonderful teacher who took me under her wing for several years 
and she was an expert with aggressive dogs and dogs who were having really difficult behavior, you know, biting people, biting other dogs, um, and everything in between. So I shadowed her for many years, and I studied everything I could get my dog, my hands on about dogs. I opened up a doggy daycare and I spent many years watching dogs all day long. And that's where you really learn a lot, especially when there's no people involved. You learn to sort of recognize body language with dogs and all of those kind of things. So I had a lot of practice working with highly aggressive dogs in very difficult situations. Um, and then in addition to that, this, the, the other side of my animal behavior work is I was also training dogs to work in movies, which was kind of my fun job. Um, because dogs and movies is all just tricks. And to be a good animal behaviorist, you also have to be a good dog trainer because a trainer changes the behavior of a dog and an animal behaviorist understands why the behavior itself is happening. And you kind of need both. So I was very fortunate to sort of work with dogs from all sides. The, the cutest, most adorable, clever dogs and the most troubled, dangerous, difficult dogs. And in all of that, I was working with all of those owners. And what people should understand, anyone who's curious about working with animals for a living, is that most of my work is actually with the people because the dogs are the easy part in this equation. And really I'm actually a people trainer, but I, I, like, I can't tell people that, so now the word's out. But, but that's what all professional dog people will tell you is it's more about educating the owners than changing the dog because the dogs are only reflecting kind of the impact they have from their owners. So I've been doing that. I've been working with difficult dogs now for about 25 years. And I tried to add up how many dogs I've actually seen. And I think it's somewhere around the, around the age of about 6,000 dogs. So it's, I've seen the range and rainbow of dogs and owners in that time, which gives me the good background to do the work that I do now. Which started how exactly? I mean, how did this sort of chapter come about? So this, so this chapter, um, for a bit of background, my mother was a divorce mediator. So when I grew up, my world was um, the language of divorce and mediated divorce versus a, a contested divorce was very much part of my awareness. And my father was a marriage counselor. So you can imagine if my dad wasn't successful, he'd pass them on to my mom. <laughs> So, but what I learned from my parents really was the art of communicating, working with conflict, not being reactive, you know, sitting in that. So I was having a conversation with my mom, this was about five years ago, um, because I was seeing dogs who were having behavior problems post-divorce. And what was happening was that obviously, as anyone listening to this knows, if, even if you're not a divorce professional, you're, you're, a light's going to go on about your friend who was in the situation where the dogs become a, a source of conflict in a divorce. And in that conflict, the needs of the dogs get lost. So I was working with dogs after the divorce where the decision about the dog wasn't made correctly. And it was resulting in the dogs being so stressed, they were having all kinds of behavior problems. I just want to and, probe a little on that. When you say the yeah. decision wasn't made correctly, what do you mean? Okay, so when I say the decision wasn't made correctly, um, for example, um, it's become very common now that when people do get a divorce, they want to do shared custody with their dogs, very much like a child. And that, Larry, doesn't work for every dog. 
Okay. It's a very, for some dogs, it's a hugely stressful way to spend their life. They don't know where they're coming and going and they don't, you know, there's usually honestly, and people might hate to hear this, but there's usually one person the dogs do favor over the other. So when they're separated from that person, it's quite hard. Um, the, the reunion and coming together between the, the, you know, the two separated couple can be very full of tension and, you know, as, as you can imagine. So that's an example that if, let's say, uh, because the couple agreed to it or a judge awarded shared custody, it's not suitable for every dog. So that's, for example, that's one. Um, another one, I mean, a, a, a quick story that I like to share that illustrates this really well was I had a couple who with, that I worked with who had a German Shepherd and this dog, the reason they called me, this was way after the divorce, but it's a perfect example. Um, her dog was chewing up her furniture and, the, and the, the mother just couldn't, she couldn't deal with it, she needed help. And what had happened was that when she got a divorce, she kept the three kids, she was the, had um, primary custody of the kids and she kept the large house with the large, large yard. And then when her husband left, he used to be the one who actually walked the dog and exercised it. And this dog loved all the kids, but his real bond was with his dad. The reason the dog was chewing up the house was he was missing his dad and he was so frustrated because he wasn't getting the exercise that he needed. So I helped those two and they were, and they were very amenable to the suggestion and, and they thought, oh, but you know, the dad works all day. He doesn't have the time for the dog, but it actually worked better for the dog to go with him. The dog needed to walk with dad every day and then he was happy. So when I say the decision doesn't get made correctly, it's usually trying to make the decision about the, the human's convenience rather than um, what is actually correct in the long-term from the dog's point of view. I appreciate that explanation because it's it's not easy for a, a person without your experience to know uh, what a right decision might might be. So I, I just had one of those moments, one of those kind of light bulb moments chatting to my mom and I realized that there isn't anyone or, or there are not a lot of people with my background in dog behavior working in the divorce space. And, and that I could provide a real service because I, I love working with people and I don't mind being in that, that place of conflict and being a neutral person because I have been all my, all of my job as a behaviorist, I'm always very often in that place because families are fighting about the dog or the neighbors are fighting about the dog. It's, it's, a, it's a place that I can dance in, let's say, and usually be fairly effective in. So when I realized that nobody was in this role, I thought, okay, that's what I'm, I'm going to put myself out there to be the person that people can come to when they're having a divorce with their dog. So I became a family law mediator. I went through a, my accreditation. So now I'm an internationally accredited um, divorce mediator and an animal behaviorist. And I marry those two things together to do what I do. I'm glad you mentioned international because you and I are talking across the, the globe. You're in Cape Town, South Africa, and I'm in the United States. And I'm just curious whether you have observed any cultural differences in the way, say, South Africans view uh, their relationship to pets as compared to the United States. Well, that's a good question. So, I mean, I grew up in Oregon, so I'm, I'm American and I've lived here in South Africa now for many years. And that's a very tricky question, Larry, honestly, now that I'm thinking about it. 
I would say I'm going to be a little bit annoying and vague and say yes and no. So first of all, dogs are dogs. Dogs always behave like dogs. It doesn't matter if I'm and I if I work with someone in England or Australia or South Africa or Florida, the dogs are going to behave similar to what they do. Um, I think the main the way that I would answer that question is people in large cities tend to be the same, whether it's in South Africa or in America. And when I work with people who have animals on farms, they view animals differently, whether that's a farm in America or a farm here in South Africa. It's more, um, is the dog an employee or is it a pet? And in that sense, people are very, very similar in terms of, of how they view their dogs. And, and I think now what's happening all over the world, and it's been happening for many years, is that for a lot of families, dogs hold the place of a, of a child. They have that same emotional um, weight and whether people have human children or not, um, that, is, that is how the dogs are treated. And, and the truth is that does a real disservice to dogs because they're not equipped to handle the emotional weight and expectation that we would, that we would give to a human child. And it becomes quite a, a, quite a overwhelming, stressful situation for dogs if they're like the focus of the household. They don't wanna be the focus of the household. You have spent so much of your life focused on, on dogs. Obviously, though, there are circumstances where a pet can, uh, there are circumstances where a pet other than a dog can engender a, a deep uh, emotional, sentimental uh, connection. And I guess I have a couple of questions. Number one, you know, how frequently are you approached uh, by folks that have a, a pet other than a dog to ask for their help? And, and secondly, you know, what, what if any differences do you observe in those kinds of cases? So most of my work is definitely with dogs. That does take the focus of it. I've had a couple of people with pet pigs that needed help. <laughs> um, parrots tend to really also have, I mean, any animal can. So I have worked with cats, parrots, and pigs, um, but you know, normally with a parrot, um, most parrots also really focus on one individual person and it's quite obvious. Um, and you know, my work is tricky because I'm, I'm a neutral party. So if the couple is really intent on litigation and fighting, there's nothing I can do. I, I have no power to say, no, you have to do this. So of course, if a, if, if, if a divorce had gotten so bitter that they're, you know, they're trying to use any weapon they can against their ex. You know, they might try to take the parrot that's obviously bonded with the husband or, or whoever. Um, but those kind of people don't call me. I get people who actually do want to work with what they're having. So to answer your question, cats, parrots, pigs, absolutely. Um, but but most, most of my work is with the, with the canines, yeah. So I'm really curious to know what, if any, trends you've seen in this work in this practice since you began it? I mean, obviously, I'd be interested in knowing what impact the pandemic has had. But but even beyond that, I mean, I would have to assume things have steadily grown. But have you have you determined have you discerned any other trends in it? The, the main trend that I see that I'm really hoping to kind of educate people about is the trend toward defaulting to shared custody. Um, and, and literally treating the dog like a child in, in the sense that it's one week with party A and one week with party B. Um, and so that's the trend that I see in terms of um, what many couples are asking for. Um, and, but what is happening in terms of legislation slowly is that 
dogs and pets in general are shifting from being labeled as property to something else where their where their best needs also have to be considered. Australia just passed um, new litigation about it. And there's a few states as well, and now I'm forgetting which ones, but there's about three states in the US where the animals are now in a different category where, okay, we actually have to consider what's best for the pet. Overwhelmingly, they are still property. So legally, you know, it's the same as your lamp and your car and the couch. Um, and what I try, the language I try to use with people is dogs are not property, but they're also not children. They really need their own, their own kind of set of rules and expectations. So that is the, that is the biggest trend that I see is uh, humanizing the dogs to their detriment. Um, and I know I, I'm, and in saying that there are some dogs who are okay with shared custody. I don't want people to think it's something that's not doable, but what I, what I tell people is that shared custody needs to be viewed more that can the animal tolerate it? Not that we're doing it for the animal's best interest, because I think that's what some people think. They think, oh, no, no, my dog will be so sad if it never sees me again. So we have for the, for Rover's sake, we're going to do shared custody. And that's, that's not really how it works. Dogs are actually easier to say goodbye than people are. So it's, it's something that the people do might do for their, for their family and their situation, but we have to say, okay, is the dog going to be okay with this or not? And there's different ways to check that out. With the pandemic and with the need to mediate so much virtually, how do you adapt to sort of understand what a, a pet or a dog is experiencing when you're not in the room? So during, I mean, my life changed like everybody's during the pandemic. And I started, so last year, seeing people online who are just having um, behavior problems with their dogs. And what I found is that it is very, very effective for me to help people online because I have to be more articulate with the people because they've got to do it all themselves rather than me actually, you know, doing a little bit of the stuff for the dog. When it comes to mediation and pets and divorce mediation, even people who are down the road from me, I don't actually interact with the dog, which I know people think sounds completely strange, but I do all of my work either virtually or in a conference room, but I don't actually get the dog involved because seeing the dog for a moment just confuses things. And what I mean by that is, you know, let's say, um, you know, John and Sally are getting a divorce and they both want custody of Rover. And if I go and meet Rover with John and Sally, what happens is both John and Sally are desperately trying to get Rover's attention to prove to me how much the dog loves each of them. And that's an impossible thing to judge in an hour. All that will happen is the dog gets very, very stressed and they usually go and hide or they get really hyper. So because of my experience in dog behavior, having worked with dogs for so long, I just need the information from the people. I need more the history of the dog and I need to understand the people's needs more than I actually need to see the physical dog in the flesh. And so that is why you know, it sounds so strange to think, but how can you work with animals online? But you actually can. And it's it's a little bit, um, I would have never have guessed this, but it's actually more effective online because it's the the decision is a cleaner one, if that can make if that makes sense. You know, I can imagine uh, listeners to our conversation, particularly those in the family mediation space, saying, gosh, I mean, you know, why couldn't I, family mediator with, with those credentials, 
manage this kind of facet of the mediation, uh, you know, in the absence of the the depth of experience that that you specifically bring. Um, so I wonder what you would say to that. Well, that's a good question because people they they kind of when I tell people what they do, they either laugh or they go, "Oh, I'm going to do that too." <laughs> so it's it's like one or the other. And the answer to your question is, in the same way that a child psychologist has studied the psychology of children. I've studied the psychology of dogs and, and the experience that I have with that puts me in a better position to um, understand what's going on below the surface. Because the challenge with dogs is they can't talk to you. They can't speak English. They do talk to you, but they talk to you in dog language and um, body language and, and, and their behavior. And it's such a subtle art that looks quite simple, you know, especially when someone's got a well-behaved dog, it's like, oh, I could do that. Um, but without understanding and having a background and experience in the psychology of dogs, it's just easy to make a wrong decision based on a moment or based on um, an assumption or based on reading something off the internet. You know, it's like the world's rife with people Googling things and thinking that they know something. And, and of course, that's not, that's not actually the way that it works. So it's um, it it is a subtle thing, and the people who I work with who value what I do can understand um, where that expertise kind of comes in because there's so many layers to why dogs do what they do and why people do what they do with their dogs. So it's a yeah, that's a, that's probably the easiest way that I can answer it. Just like you wouldn't just because you had a child. So let's put it this way. So many people listening have had their own child that that doesn't make them a child psychologist. <laughs> I think the clever people who've had a child would go, oh my God, I'm definitely not a child psychologist. Um, so having a dog doesn't, doesn't give you enough um, uh, background and enough uh, depth to understand how to help people in that situation. Do, do you think that there's a role for someone like you almost the way an expert witness might be uh, engaged in a, in a litigation, which is to say, that if a family mediator found that the pet issue or the dog issue was a significant one, could you imagine a scenario, or maybe you've already had this in your practice where you're, you're sort of retained to help make sense of that piece rather than being the, the primary mediator? I haven't, so I haven't been in that situation yet, thankfully. Um, and yeah, I mean, I could, I really try not to, <laughs> The people that I work with were trying to avoid litigation. So um, I haven't yet had a situation where people have come to me in that, in that, with that intention and then things fell apart so bad that we've had to go to litigation. If there was some clear abuse and something um, obviously more, more difficult going on that needed some work, I certainly would do my best to take care of the animal. That's really my default. It's like, I'm, I'm not here for either of the people. I'm really here for the dog. I care about everybody, but my focus is on the dog. So would I, would I change my role to help a dog? Yes. I haven't had to yet. Um, and yeah, so fingers, you know, I'm sure it'll happen, but it hasn't yet. <laughs> so as you said, there, there are some people that may, you know, scoff at this or mock it, but there are others who are interested in it. So if, if someone's listening and thinks, gosh, I'd love to 
to round up my practice in this way or maybe take a different turn, what would you tell them? So I tell them to give me a call and we'll chat about it and and they can do my how to do pet mediation course, which I have to develop. <laughs> I don't it, it's it's a very good question, Larry, and I know that some people listening might be might be having that having those kind of thoughts. Um, and, you know, it might be the sort of thing where they might need to um, find a person in their area that could assist them that's got the kind of background it's a the, the divorce space, as we know, and people listening is a delicate one. And it requires awareness of the situation, um, and how to approach it and how to work with people in in that world. So um, I would say that if it's something that they want to look into, you know, there's there's dog behavior courses that people can study. There's there's different things like that. But I don't as yet um, have a very good answer about that. Um, I mean, we can pause in this. I mean, I am. My plan is to actually develop a course for mediators, which I just haven't done yet. But that's but that's what I want to do because I know there are people. It's like I, I can't help everybody. So I know there are mediators who would just like enough awareness about it. So that's my that's my next my next few months goal. So yeah. This may seem a little off the wall, but I, I guess I wonder whether there could be a context other than family mediation, but still within the dispute resolution space where the kind of knowledge you have of dogs and of pets could be useful. I'm thinking perhaps of a, you, you mentioned business, you know, a, a, a farming business or some other circumstance where the dog is involved and has interests, but it's not a, a divorce per se. Have you, have you considered yep. that? Oh yeah, I do all kinds of pet mediation. So um, neighbors fighting over a barking dog. We've all heard of those, um, especially if people are threatening to get the law involved. So I can come in uh, to work with that. I work with breeders. So, so there's, for people who aren't familiar with the world of dog breeding, there's a, um, you know, sometimes there's huge money and, and investment involved in certain purebred dogs. And there are some situations where for example, a breeder will sell a puppy to a person and say, the condition of me selling you this dog is that you either will or won't breed with the dog, like there's been a contract signed. And then sometimes the people who buy that dog say, listen, I'm going to neuter my dog, you can't breed with it. Um, and the breeder says, no, that was our deal. So those kind of situations I get involved. Um, and yeah, anything kind of um, any situation where there is an animal in dispute, and people don't want to go to court to try to have a winner, a winner and a loser, then I can come in and um, absolutely mediate that space. Yeah, so I do, a lot of, I do a lot of neighbors who are struggling with the other neighbor's dog. And that's, that's probably outside of divorce mediation, that's probably the biggest thing that I do. I also have to wonder, have you ever mediated between two dogs? <laughs> every day, every day I do that. Okay, so so this is why I love my job is I've, 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 I've said for many, many years that really what I am is I'm a translator. So I translate between what a dog is saying and what a person wants and I translate between the two. I also translate between the dogs. So some of the dogs that I work with, um, the reason that they act aggressive is, for, uh, for example, like let's say there's a dog who wasn't socialized. So what that means is when it left its mom, it just spent its life around humans. It didn't get a chance to interact with other dogs. And then it goes to the dog park and it attacks a dog because it doesn't know how to read what a dog is saying. 
So for a dog who has missed its social time and missed the awareness of what a dog is saying, I do literally mediate between that dog and other dogs. And I will make sure to put friendly dogs with it who can teach it. And, 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 and it's quite an interesting thing. So, I mean, I'm being a little bit silly, but I, I feel like I just spend, I've spent my whole life in mediation between different species. Yeah, absolutely. And dogs and cats, oh, that's a big one. Lots of mediating between dogs and cats, dogs and sheep, uh, dogs and parrots, you name it. Gosh, yeah, anything. Well, uh, this has been a, a fascinating conversation and Kara Snafty, thank you so much for joining us on Resolutions. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for having me, Larry. It was great. That was Karis Nafti, a mediator and animal behaviorist based in South Africa. For more information on her practice, you can visit whokeepsthedog.com. That's whokeepsthedog.com. Thanks for listening to Resolutions from the American Bar Association Dispute Resolution Section. I'm Larry Schooler.